Welcome to the May 9th sermon from Clifford Baptist Church, 635 Fletcher's Level Road in Amherst. Today's scripture is John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57, and the sermon is entitled, Don't Miss the Miracles, delivered today by Pastor Michael Fitzgerald. We are going to continue on in our sermon series through the Gospel of John. Get your Bible out, turn it to chapter 11. We're going to close that chapter out today. This is sermon number 40. Uh, in the Gospel of John. In fact, one of the things that I want to let you know is, of course, we're on Equip FM five days a week, uh, three times in a day. It's the same sermon at 5 a.m., 4 p.m., 10 p.m., but five days a week. So 15 times we're on the radio during the week as well as then on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock in in the Lynchburg area. But uh, these 40 sermons are playing on the radio right now. Uh, I said once I get to the halfway point of the Gospel of John, and we're right there roughly coming out of chapter 11 now, uh, so we are at the past, the little past the halfway point, so I released the first 40 sermons to the radio. So if you're tuning in to Equip FM in the week, you're going to be hearing the beginnings of this sermon series, and it will run through this sermon today, and then we'll take a break and finish the rest of the John series and then put the whole series back to the radio. So that's the way the radio ministry is running in these days. But as we go into the Gospel of John today, we remember once again that this is the last living disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. No earthly man knew or loved Jesus more than John the disciple. Uh, He was one, of course, of the three leading disciples of the twelve, Peter, James, and his brother John. And he referred to himself not as John in his gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in fact, you and I can refer to ourselves in that same way. If we know and believe and follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, we too are a disciple that he loves and that he gives his strength to. Uh, It is so evident that he loves Jesus. He writes this gospel so that it might be a tool. After he passes off of the scene, he would leave behind a tool that could still bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And millions upon millions have come, perhaps just through one verse, John 3, 16. So as we meet together today, this is the precious Word of God written by a precious disciple of God and inspired by the very Spirit of God. So as we go into chapter 11 today, as we uh, open the chapter and go through the chapter, we hear John's eyewitness account of Jesus' greatest earthly miracle, the the raising of Lazarus from the dead. After he had been dead and in the tomb four days, he was buried on the same day that he died. Embalming did not take place in Israel, and so they buried him on that very same day. Now, in the past two sermons that we've been through, uh, we've studied the gripping account of Mary and Martha's grief and the loss of their brother. We also hear Jesus' promise that he is the resurrection and the life. And then we see the overwhelming proof of that claim as he raises Lazarus from the dead and as Lazarus stumbles out of his own grave site in his own grave clothes with the napkin still on his face. So we see the bona fide miracle and the claim that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life and that claim is fulfilled the moment that Lazarus walks out of that tomb. So today we pick up the aftermath of Lazarus resurrection. What happened after Lazarus came out of the tomb? Well, I want you to remember the little town of Bethany was still crowded with people. Many people within the little town and within the community came to Mary and Martha 
to share their grief. And often people would stay with a family for many days, a week or more, sharing their grief of their loss. But Jesus comes into town four days after Lazarus had died and been buried. Many were still there to witness what was going to happen in this resurrection miracle. But the question that I ask you today is, how did the crowd react to Lazarus' resurrection. That's what we're going to study in these moments. If we pick up today, John 11, look at verse 45, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. But as I begin, look at verses 45 and 46. John chapter 11, go to verse 45. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But, notice that word of verse 46, but... Some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. So these two verses tell us the reaction of the crowd, how people reacted to the resurrection miracle of Lazarus walking from his own grave after four four days of death. As they receive this miracle, as they see this miracle, many of them instantly come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We see that in verse 45 that there are many who react to the resurrection and to the words of Jesus, that he is the resurrection and the life, and they come to belief. When Lazarus emerges from that tomb, it seals their faith and it seals their trust, and they come to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. So many people in that moment of resurrection were saved eternally because they believed what Jesus said and they saw what Jesus did. Verse 46 begins with an interesting word, though, the word but which means verse 45 says there were believers, but verse 46 says there were some who reacted in a very different way. There were others who were not inspired by the the miracle of resurrection at all. Their heart was not changed. So basically what I want you to hear is they missed the miracle. You will notice that the, the title of the sermon today is Don't Miss the Miracles. That's exactly what part of the crowd did outside of Lazarus' tomb. They missed the miracle of Lazarus walking from his own grave. They missed the miracle of Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life, and I want to give that life to you if you will accept me as Lord and Savior. Instead of accepting Jesus as Savior, this crowd went back to Jerusalem as informers. They immediately found Jesus' enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees, and reported this act of resurrection. They did not report it with joy. They didn't report it uh, as an an act of a savior, but rather they reported it as a criminal act almost, telling the Pharisees that Jesus has done this very act out in Bethany. Well, you know, this shows us an amazing side of the human heart, doesn't it? A side of the heart that uh, is sad. Some people who literally saw a man raised from the dead and yet even outside of Lazarus' tomb, standing by the Savior of the world, they rejected him. They rejected the miracle. They rejected the words of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. So rather than receive him, they ran back to town as tattletales to report what Jesus did in a very negative way. The Pharisees had to know that Jesus is out here stirring the people up with all of these miracles. Well, that shows us this amazing side of the heart. And we say, that's amazing. Isn't that amazing? A person could stand outside of a tomb of a dead man four days in 
and see him literally walk out of his tomb by the power of Jesus Christ who says, Lazarus, come forth. And yet they did not believe. We look at that scripture, and when you really think about it, you think, how can that be? How could someone be so hard-hearted that they couldn't receive Jesus as Savior at the very face of a miracle like that? And yet, I've seen it today. I've witnessed that kind of heart myself. I've seen a person who is literally dying, literally facing death, and he or she is pulled back from death through a surgery or through an emergency intervention or simply God just miraculously healed them and pulled them back from the very face of death. I want you to know miracles are not limited to the Bible. You and I live in the midst of miracles every single day. The greatest miracle of all could happen in this very sanctuary or on a streaming camera somewhere in someone's home when that person says, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. That's the greatest miracle in the universe, the greatest healing that could ever take place. But I've been with people who have been through a miraculous healing, but many of them will attribute that miracle to a good doctor, or a good medication, uh, they don't see the miracle. They say, boy, I dodged that bullet. Wasn't that a lucky break? No. That was a miracle of God that he healed you. So there are people still today who miss the miracles. Yes, there are many who miss the miracle outside of Lazarus' tomb, but there are still those today who miss the miracle of life who missed the miracle of coming to Jesus as Lord and Savior, who missed the daily miracles of healings and blessings that come to us day by day. They might say they, they they never truly fall at Jesus' feet, never saying, Lord, thank you for the miracle of healing. Thank you for the miracle of salvation. Thank you, Lord, that I have the opportunity and the desire and the privilege that I might fall at your feet and worship you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given me a miracle, and it brings me to you. And now in my life, I want to give you credit for everything that happens in my life because the miracles belong to you. It's not a lucky break. Thank God for good doctors, but they're inspired by and led by the great physician. Give the Lord his due in the miracles. Don't miss the miracles. So many did outside of Lazarus' tomb, and we have to be careful not to do so ourselves. So when something miraculous happens, happens in your life or my life fall at his feet and say lord thank you for this miracle that you've given to me if there's someone in your life and some situation comes along that you obviously see a miracle in their life remind them of that let them know that it's the lord at work in your life that brought this miracle along for you don't take jesus for granted And don't underestimate him and don't explain him away and don't miss the miracles that he is the one who gives them to us. Don't miss those miracles. But here in John 11, the tattlers run to the Pharisees and report this miracle of Jesus. How do the Pharisees react to the news? Well, here's the bulk of what we're going to study this morning. I want you to look at verses 47 through 57 of John 11. Hear then these words as John wrote them down under the inspiration of God. Start with verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place 
and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye? that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he were, he should show it that they might take him. May God add his blessing to the reading of this important portion of his word. So upon hearing the, the news of greatest, the greatest miracle of Jesus here in these days, the Jewish religious leaders found, formed a, a council or a committee to take care of this, prob, uh, this problem of a man. They had to deal with Jesus. They had to do something with him. As we read these verses, this council was composed of Pharisees, uh, composed of religious leaders, uh, and also not only did the leading priests of the temple become part of this council, but even one person served on the council who was the high priest of Israel that year. His name was Caiaphas. It's an interesting note that Caiaphas was a Sadducee. Now, what is a Sadducee versus a Pharisee? Well, a Sadducee, according to Acts chapter 23, verse 8, Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in everlasting life. They believed once you died, you simply faded away. There was no such thing as an eternal life for a Sadducee. Uh, to their credit, Pharisees did believe in resurrection. Pharisees did believe in eternal life. So normally, Sadducees and Pharisees did not associate with one another. Their theological base was so wide apart that they didn't socialize. They didn't they didn't meet with one another because they disagreed on just about every point of theology. But you'll notice on this council, this committee, both sorts joined together. Why is that? Well, they had a lot of different theology, but they had one common goal. Kill Jesus. That was their goal. They could set their theology aside because their goal as a committee was to murder the Savior. He's threatening our lifestyle. He's a troublemaker for us all. Let's devise his murder as a council. Let's put forth a plan that we can work on so we can take him off the face of the earth. Look back at verse 48, chapter 11, verse 48. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both, listen, our place and nation. 
So this council says, if we do nothing here, if we just sit on our hands and let Jesus have his way, he's going to draw so many people to him as Lord and Savior that we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our fame. We're going to lose our fortune. We're going to lose our popularity with the Jewish people and, and also with the Roman government. So we need to take action right now in order to get rid of him. And the old shifty high priest Caiaphas speaks up. Not a good word to be spoken about Caiaphas. But he said, we need to take action. But you men, you're not thinking here. You're not thinking logically. You're not thinking to our advantage here. I want you to use your brain here, men, a little bit on the council. Think about this. You're being too negative about this whole process. Let's think about getting Jesus off the scene. If we accomplish that goal, it's going to be good for everybody as we get Jesus off the face of the earth. When he dies, it will save our nation of Israel a lot of turbulence and a lot of trouble. If he dies, it will smooth out our relationship with the Roman government. So I want you to see, gentlemen, that there's a positive side to killing Jesus. There's a reason we need to get this done, and it's to our advantage and to the advantage of our nation. We need to murder him, get him off the scene. And according to verse 50, Caiaphas literally says, it'd be much better for this man to die than for our whole nation to be destroyed. So let's get him off the scene. Our council, our committee, has a very worthy thing that we need to do in order to save our nation. Now I want you to listen to this. As John writes this down, under the inspiration of God. He then interjects his own thought here. So Caiaphas has made his statement. The council has made their statement. Now John is going to interject what he believes is going on in this place. So I want you, as he processes what Caiaphas says, let's look at John's thought then as he puts it in his gospel. Look at verses 51 and 52. So John interjects this. And this spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. So here's John's thought. Here's John's processing what's going on with Caiaphas and this council. As, as John thinks about it, he says, you know, O Caiaphas makes a statement about the death of Jesus being a good thing for the nation of Israel. And he doesn't realize it, but he's a prophet. He is prophesying exactly what God says is going to happen, that Jesus would die, but he wouldn't die just to save the nation of Israel. He would die to save the world. He would die to save every person in every corner of the globe, wherever abroad somewhere someone might be. Jesus will die on the cross to save that one. So Caiaphas said the right thing. He thought he was expressing his own thought, but actually he was a prophet of God saying that, yes, Jesus is going to die, and yes, he's going to save the nation of Israel, but he's also going to die to save the entire world. So John interjects that into his gospel. He says, we're hearing the plan for Jesus, and God Almighty is speaking his will, and he's speaking it through the lips of a sinner whose name is Caiaphas. Isn't that an interesting? I love God's word, the way that it comes together, and the way God speaks even through the lips of those who are lost 
how wonderful the word is. Now look at John eleven fifty three. Here's the job description of the council, this committee. John eleven fifty three. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. So these so-called godly men are forming the committee of the cross. They are forming a death plan for Jesus. Now as we come to verses 54 through 57, Jesus now knows that there absolutely, definitely is a price on his head. He is a wanted man. A death penalty is awaiting him, that the council of the cross is working together to bring this death penalty to come. But Jesus, remember this, never forget this. Jesus is not on man's timetable. Jesus is on God's timetable. He is not going to die one minute before God says it's time. And Jesus, the Son of God, knows that he is on God the Father's holy timetable, and he is going to abide by that timetable. Jesus is not running from men in fear. He has no fear of this plan, but rather he is following his Father in faith. He's not running in fear. He's following in faith, knowing that that plan indeed is going to be carried out by the Father's will. He's not walking in public crowds at this moment. He withdraws from the crowds because he knows about the death penalty over his head. And he takes his disciples, according to the word here, he takes his disciples to a quiet wilderness place, a city called Ephraim. In the Old Testament, the city is called Ephron. It's about 14 miles north of Jerusalem. It's a city of safety, a city of quietness, a city of prayer and preparation shortly before Palm Sunday. Just before Jesus comes into Jerusalem on that last time in the week of the cross, just before Palm Sunday comes, Jesus goes to Ephraim to prepare himself and to pray and prepare his disciples for what is going to come. So as we see that, we know it's an important place for Jesus to be, a place of quietness. Uh, And according to verse 56, Uh, the Jews now are beginning to prepare themselves for Passover. Remember that Jesus dies on the cross during the Passover season. So it's just a time away now, and so the Jews are beginning to ceremonially cleanse themselves, preparing their hearts, preparing their bodies even for the celebration of Passover. So as the Jews are thinking about Passover coming, they're beginning to talk about Jesus. wonder if he'll come. I wonder... If Jesus will show up in Jerusalem, he's been here many times. We've seen his miracles here. But now there's a death penalty over his head. We wonder as we prepare for Passover, will Jesus show up in Jerusalem for this high holy day? So they're wondering about that. Well, the council of the cross has put out a commandment. The commandment is this. If you know where Jesus is, you report him immediately to us. Because we, that moment, will go and have him arrested. We will take him out of that crowd and arrest him. Leading him on to death is the implication. So as we close chapter 11 today, what I want you to see is that we're getting closer and closer to the center piece and the center point of human history. We're getting closer and closer now to the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we get closer to the cross, I want you to notice here as well that all kinds of people are surrounding him. Those who hate him, those who question him, those who are undecided about him, 
and those who love him. He's surrounded by all kinds of people. And really, through this study, God has shown me that we see different people in God's Word. God has shown me that there are different people who surround us every day of our life in the way that they consider Jesus. And, and as I think about the way that people reacted to Jesus 2,000 years ago, I thought about what kind of groups do we face in our own life today. And as I see it, we face four groups of people in the world. First group is the group that literally hates Jesus still. Those who don't want any part of Jesus. Those who would rather have his name never mentioned again. Uh, they are totally against the ministry and the call and the love and the salvation and the gift of grace through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They would rather have him off the earth than have that invitation extended to them. Those people exist today just as they did 2,000 years ago. Isn't that sad? But they're in the world today. And yet, they're still not out of the reach of Jesus Christ's grace. If their heart were to change, if their heart were to turn to him, he would readily receive an atheist as much as he would receive a six-year-old child in faith. He still loves them. He still acknowledges that he died on the cross to save them, and yet they continue to hate him. How sad that is, but that's one group of people still in the world today. Second group of people. Some people may know about the name of Jesus, but they have no clue as to who he is because they have no relationship with him. They have no knowledge of the word of God. They don't know anything about Jesus. They're lost. They are sheep without a shepherd. And they don't know how lost they really are. They don't understand the cross. And they don't understand the empty tomb. And these people are all over the world. They're in every country. And they cross your and my path every day. People who don't know Jesus. People who don't know the word. People who don't know the call to salvation. They need to be led to the Savior. And as they walk across our paths every single day, we should be witnesses. We should be representatives. We should be those who witness the Lord Jesus Christ to them in the way that we love them and relate to them because they don't know him. They don't have any relationship with him. The third group. Thirdly, some people acknowledge that Jesus answers prayer. They believe that he lives. At some point in their life, they may have even joined a church, may have even been baptized, but he's not important enough to worship. He's not important enough to serve. He's not important enough to lay down your life to. Somewhere in their life, they were involved in church. They know something about him, but they've not given themselves to him. That's a sad life as well. The one who knows him just enough, but not enough to really have a relationship with him. Those people are all over the world. They cross our paths every single day. He's not important enough to worship. Other things have gotten in the way. I pray that we reach them. I pray that we can reclaim them. I pray that we can rekindle the fire of what they once felt. I pray that they won't miss the miracle that they had in their life and we need to reach them and I imagine you know some of them you know some from probably all three groups so far but we need to reclaim them finally there are some people who are like John the disciple they've seen the miracle of salvation they love the Lord Jesus with all of their heart life is about worshiping him I cannot imagine 
going through life and not worshiping him. I can't imagine not being here with you. Uh, th- this, is, this is just the centerpiece of our lives together as a family. Gwen and I love worshiping here, and we love worshiping with you. If that were suddenly taken out of our life, I don't know what we'd do. We love the people of God, and we love, above all, the Savior who gave us life. He's the first thought in the morning. He's the last prayer at night. I want to be in that group. Amen? Do you want to be in that group? That he's the centerpiece of life. All of life revolves around what you believe in the Savior who lives in your heart. We want to be like John the disciple in that everything that we do reflects on the Savior. We want to remember that we are the disciple whom Jesus loves, gave his life on the cross for, and now he deserves our life as we follow his footsteps. I pray, brothers and sisters, that we will recommit our lives to recognizing the miracle that we're saved and that we're children, sons and daughters of God. And I pray that we will also rededicate our lives to reaching those who don't love Jesus or those who had a relationship somewhere in their life with him. Bring them back to church. Bring them back to Jesus. Help that be a calling in our lives, Lord, that we will reach out to those who need a relationship with the Savior. So as we come to a close today, I thank God for the believers in the Lord Jesus. I pray we'll grow in loving him, serving him, worshiping him, and reaching out for him. But today, if you are here and you're one who knows about him, but you've never known him, today you can begin a relationship with him as your Lord and your Savior. You you can know that he is calling you by name. And he he loves you. Your life was on his heart the day he went to the cross. And you have to know that his arms are open to you this very day. Again, believers, I would ask you at 11 o'clock, pray for this invitation that will go out to the world that there are those who need to know Jesus or come back to Jesus or get back on the path with Jesus. Pray for those decisions to be made. Maybe there's a decision in this very sanctuary today that needs to be made for Jesus, coming back to him giving your life to him as Savior, promising him that you will be his witness and his child who takes the good news from the sanctuary. Whatever your decision, church, home, healing, whatever it is, the Lord meets us right here in this place. Let's pray together. Father, our God, help us, Lord, not to miss the miracles. The greatest miracle of all, Lord, for the child of God is that you loved us enough to come to die on a cross and rise from a tomb to save us and give us eternal life. Father, I, for one, too often just take that for granted, something you did for me. But I pray today, Father, that you will reinstill in my heart and maybe the hearts of brothers and sisters here what a sheer miracle it is that we can call ourselves a child of God. What an amazing gift you gave us, the greatest gift, the greatest miracle in all of the universe. Help us, Lord, not take that miracle for granted. And I pray, Father, that you will also reclaim us to be your witnesses, that we will go into the world to touch lives, to touch hearts, to touch people with the love of Jesus Christ and to bring them to you. Father, there are so many sheep without a shepherd out there. We know that we're your arm of ministry into the world. Help us to know, Father, that on our lips and in our hearts, we carry the miracle of the invitation of Jesus. Bless us as we go as servants. Bless that one who needs you, Lord. Today, eternity can change this very moment when he or she says yes to you. Church home, whatever the need, bless us in this moment in Jesus' name.
Clifford Baptist Church invites you to join us for worship every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. For more information about our church, please call our church office at 434-946-0555.